And thus I have done with the second branch of the use in these six particulars. <clears throat> the third and the last branch shall be by way of consolation to troubled and perplexed consciences, <clears throat> that by reason of their falling into aggravated and heinous sins, to entertain doubtful thoughts of their own pardon. Five consolations I shall lay down to you from Scripture. First, consider for thy comfort that conversion and repentance for sin before God wipes off the ignominy and the infamy of thy former miscarriages. Suppose thou past being an ignominious, notorious, foul creature, yet repentance puts a veil over thy ignominious lusts. Secondly, take this for thy comfort, that Jesus Christ doth manifest more love to those men who have fallen into gross sin after repentance and humiliation than he did to any other sorts of men in the world. It is observable of Peter Peter did sin more than all the disciples, unless Judas, that was the castaway, after Peter did humble himself and repent of his denial, Christ did show more love to Peter than to all the other disciples. First, Christ appeared to Peter after his resurrection, before he appeared to any other. So Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians 15.5, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, there was love in Christ. Peter did deny him but three days before, and Peter must first see him. Again, when Christ was risen from the dead, he sent a messenger to Peter, particularly by name. Go tell my disciples in general, and tell Peter that I am risen. Mark sixteen seven. But go your ways... Tell his disciples and Peter. Peter was crying, weeping, and bewailing that he should deny his master. And saith Christ, Go tell Peter that I am risen. Christ doth single out Peter after he rose from the dead. Christ hath a more discourse with Peter than he hath with all his disciples else. Job 21. Thus you see that John 21. Thus you see that Jesus Christ manifests love uh, to those sinners that sinned foully after they have repented and are sufficiently humbled for their sin. Thus it is with Mary Magdalene after she repented. What expressions of love doth Christ show to her? First we read that he cast out of her seven devils. Luke 8, 2. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. Then he appeared first to Mary, and she was the first that saw him when he was risen. Mark 16.9 Now when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Again Christ wept to see Mary, John 11.33 When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Again, Christ commanded that wherever the gospel uh, came to be preached, 
the name of Mary should be made known. Matthew 26.13 Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. What a great honor this was this to Mary Magdalene. Thus it appears that God doth manifest to those persons that have sinned the grossest sins, if afterward they shall have the more serious and thorough humiliation, the clearest evidences and the strongest comforts. Thus much for the two consolations. Thirdly, take this for your comfort. It is not the greatness of that sin thou committest, but only the hardness and impenitency of thine own heart that can exempt thee from pardon. Divines do generally say that the reason of that saying in Scripture, all sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven, neither in this world nor in the world to come. It is not that there is not more merit in Christ to save than there is guilt in that sin, but it is because that man cannot repent of the sin, therefore that sin cannot be forgiven, because he cannot repent. Suppose thy sin be blasphemy. This doth not exempt from pardon. It is not the greatness of thy sin, but the judicial hardness and final impenitency of thy heart that can exempt thee from pardon. When Peter preached to the Jews that had a hand in crucifying the Son of God, yet saith he, Repent, and your sins shall be blotted out. Oh, what sin could be greater than their embrewing their hands in the blood of Christ? Yet do but repent, and your sins shall be blotted out. It is not for want of great mercy on God's part, and great merits on Christ's part, that men are unpardoned, but it is want of repentance on thine own part. Fourthly, that no gross sin committed by a justified person can make void his former pardon. A rule among the schoolmen, the work of God cannot be made void or frustrated by the work of man. Election is a work of God. Redemption, the work of God. Justification, the work of God, which cannot be made void by the work of man. Therefore, if God hath elected thee, redeemed thee, justified and pardoned thee, the incursion of gross evils cannot restrain thee of former pardon. It is true, sin may make void thy former comforts, thy former evidences. Gross sins may lay waste thy conscience, but they cannot lay waste the grace and the mercies of God. Herein you may be greatly comforted and established. Fifthly, I uh, take this for thy comfort. Though thou dost fall into gross and aggravated guilt, yet such is the goodness and mercy of God, that he orders thy very falling into sin to turn to thy good. I do not mention this to any that they should be emboldened to fall into sin because it may turn to good. Oh, it is God that orders a man's fall for his good. A threefold good that God doth to his people out of their very sins. God doth not only do good to his people by their afflictions, but he doth good to his people by their very sins. First, sometimes God doth so order that 
the falling of a godly man into sin shall abate pride in his heart. Men of great parts are apt to be proud. God many times will let strong lusts attend strong gifts. The more to abate and keep under the exaltation of spirit. Therefore, saith Paul, I have the messengers of Satan to buffet me, that I might not be exalted above measure. God doth many times to keep under pride, let a temptation loose on a man, and so God doth him good that way. Austin saith, I am not afraid to say that it is profitable sometimes for good men to fall into sin. Secondly, it will prevent many other sins. Here is God's great mercy. The putting of a man to pain takes away pain. Beloved, God sometimes suffers a man to sin, that sin might keep out another sin. One sin may be so ordered by God to keep out another sin. Thirdly, falling into sin sometimes doth renew the work of repentance. The Lord sometimes lets them sleep, that so he might awaken them by a greater humiliation, and to taste the more of the bitterness and the fruit of sin. Here then is God's goodness to a sinner, that by letting him fall into a sin, he doth thee good, and makes thee to renew repentance and greatens humiliation in thy heart. Now, for the finishing of this subject, there are seven cases of conscience that, in this doctrine, are needful to be resolved. First, whether God may forgive a man his sin, and yet the man himself not know it. Here David had sin forgiven him, and David did know it. I acknowledge, and thou forgavest. But whether may a man have sin forgiven him, and yet not know he is pardoned? I answer in the affirmative, that a man may have sin forgiven him, and yet not know that his sin is pardoned. Though David did not, or David did know his pardon in this psalm, yet he did not know his pardon in other psalms. Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. God broke David's bones for his adultery, and David was driven to shed a river of tears before God did pour in one drop of joy. Job 33.10, Behold, uh, he findeth occasions against me, he counteth me for his enemy. Job thought that God was an enemy unto him, and you have not only the confession of one man, but the doubts and fears of the church in general. Lamentations 3.42, We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. We have rebelled, etc. Yet God had pardoned, and God had forgiven them. Yet here was their fear and their doubt. They lay under suspense of pardon. God may pardon a sin unto the elect, and yet they not know that they are pardoned. And in the manifold wisdom of God there are diverse reasons for it. First, by keeping them, under a suspense of pardon, they may sympathize with and carry more tenderness of compassion towards them that are troubled in mind. It was one end of Christ's sufferings. His soul was in an agony and under a desertion, crying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was the end of it? It was for this, that Christ might carry more compassion and more bowels of tenderness towards persons that are under deep desertions. 
let a scholar that studies many things read in a book the art of navigation and where are rocks and shelves and sands and yet by all he reads he cannot pity men in a storm if he have never been in a storm himself let one read what the scripture mentions of the pangs of a woman in travail she cannot so compassionate a woman in travail unless she have had the pangs herself so in divine things it is experience that makes men have compassion secondly it is for this reason to raise up in men's hearts a higher esteem of pardoning grace things highly come by are highly set by what is the reason that birds do chirp and sing more sweetly in the spring than in any other part of the year it is for this because after the vanishing away of a long and tedious winter the refreshing spring comes in the love of the lord makes his people chirp and sing in the sense of pardoning grace rejoicing in that the more the longer the winter of desertion hath been when god lets them have long desertion then they do the more rejoice and sing when pardons are attained men do then prize the land when they have been tossed by a tempest on the sea those that have been tossed on the waves of spiritual trouble that have had a storm and a tempest in their consciences they will prize pardoning grace the most thirdly god doth sometimes pardon a man's sin yet not tell him of it and it is for rebuke to him because he hath not lived in the exercise of grace thou keepest back obedience from god and god keeps back comfort from thee this is a main reason why sometimes god pardons a sinner yet doth not tell him of it in his own conscience it is done in heaven the pardon is written there but it is not done in the conscience it is not written here it is to give thee a rebuke a check in thine own heart surely i have not exercised grace therefore surely god will not give me the comforting work of his spirit when thou art not much in grace then thou shalt be but little in peace it is just with god so to do fourthly the lord pardons a sin when he doth not tell that it is pardoned it is to make the repentance of men more visible and satisfactory to the world that hath been offended by their sin the lord will make the world see that if men will sin notoriously they shall smart bitterly to make the world see that repentance is no slight work and to make peace with god is not easy fifthly to make men to taste the evils and bitterness of sin should a man that is notoriously wicked presently attain the sense of pardon it may be he would not taste the bitterness of sin another reason is this to teach doubting christians that assurance is not essential to a pardon it is separable from pardon it is separable from faith therefore from pardon a man may believe yet know not that he doth believe the lord doth it for that end to teach doubting christians that though they have not assurance yet they may have faith though they want the sense of pardon they may be pardoned there cannot be fruit but there must be a tree yet there may be a tree when there is no fruit 
there may be grace in the heart when there is no peace in the conscience. To have peace is additional to grace. Now the Lord for these holy ends does sometimes pardon a sin in heaven when the pardon is not sealed to the conscience. Thus much for the first case. The second case of conscience is this. If God pardons a sin, whether or no he afflict and punish men for it after it is forgiven, this is a useful question. And the reason is because there are errors and mistakes about it. Mistakes on the right hand and on the left. The antinomians say that a pardoned sinner is never afflicted for sin, and say they to say that a man whose sin is forgiven is afflicted for sin doth derogate from the satisfaction and sufferings of Christ. Then the papists say that men are afflicted and punished for sin, and that these punishments are for satisfaction to divine justice, and they are meritorious, and on this ground they they bottom uh, purgatory that after a man is dead, he must for some years lie in purgatory to satisfy for some notorious gross sin done in his life. Now, beloved, to keep you from swerving either way, I shall lay down the true genuine state of this question and resolve it to you. First consider this, that God doth not afflict any man but where sin is. That is my first position. God doth not cruciate an innocent uh, creature. Indeed, the schoolmen have a question whether God, by his sovereignty, may torment an innocent creature, but that is but a nicety. But this is most certain that God, in the dispensation of his judgments, doth punish no man but where sin is. Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Secondly, though God afflicts none sinless, Yet sometimes it may be for trial and not for sin. So was Job's affliction. It was not for sin, but for trial, to try Job's grace. Thirdly and chiefly, it is apparent from scriptures that pardoned sinners may be punished for their sins. Would not this be partial for a father to beat the servant for a fault and yet not beat the child for a worse fault? Now, beloved... The Lord will not leave such a plea as this in any wicked man's heart. In all the kingdoms of the world, where sword, where pestilence, where famine, and where plagues have been, the good have fallen with the bad. The righteous have fallen by the sword as well as the wicked. The reason is that the world shall not say that he is a partial God. Now to satisfy and to establish your thoughts in this point, I shall give you two express testimonies in the scripture that God doth punish his people for sin, though their sins be pardoned. The one is of David, Second Samuel 12.14. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. I will punish thee in thy child. I will pardon thy sin, yet I will punish thy sin. So likewise, in Second Samuel seven fourteen and 15, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, etc. A promise to Solomon, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. But if he commit iniquity, 
I will chasten him with rods. And the psalmist, when he quotes this expression, refers it to all the godly. Psalm 89, 31 and 32. If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. It was not only true of Solomon, but it is spoken of all the church. If they commit iniquity, I will chastise them with rods. O beloved, here as Solomon may be chastened with rods if he commits iniquity, nay, not only one man, but all the church. Amos 3.2 You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. If God be severe, it is with his own people to make them smart for sin. He may spare wicked men and not punish them here because he hath his hell for them later. But this shall be all the hell of a godly man and all their punishment. Aye, but this is Old Testament and thus the antinomians take off and evade this scripture. But doth God so in the New Testament? Yes, in the New Testament, Romans 8.10 And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. He speaks of the believing Romans that death on their bodies was because of sin. And then the Apostle speaks to the godly Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.29 and 30 For he he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Many godly men were sick and weak for their profaning the Lord's Supper. And this is under the New Testament. That the Apostle saith as approving the righteous judgment of God, Let not us commit fornication as some of them committed, 1 Corinthians 10. Let us not fall as they fell, and many of them, Among the 23,000 were good men. The Apostle approves of God's judgment to be righteous in that act. Only one objection against this. Doth not the scripture say in Isaiah 53 that the chastisements of our peace are laid upon Christ? Now if all those chastisements that were due us for sin were laid on Christ, doth not this derogate from uh, Christ's sufferings that he must suffer for sin? and that we must suffer too? Doth not this intimate uh, that Christ's sufferings were not satisfactory? The answer is easy, that when we say we suffer for sin and are punished for sin, understand this, there is a great deal of difference between our suffering for sin and Christ's. We do not suffer for sin as Christ did, because our punishments for sin are not by way of satisfaction to divine justice, but only by way of castigation from divine justice. When God doth punish a pardoned man with some outward judgment for a sin, it is no satisfaction, no compensation. When the text saith that our chastisements are laid upon Christ, the meaning is Christ suffers for sin by way of satisfaction. He appeareth, he appeaseth God's wrath, he satisfies uh, God's justice for the sins that we have done. Should we lose our blood for a time? Should we give the fruit of our body for the sins of our soul? Yet this cannot make a compensation for sin. Therefore it may well consist that God punished Christ for our sins by way of satisfaction to his justice, 
and may punish us by way of castigation. Now, to uh, pacify and satisfy your thoughts, the more on this, that though God doth pardon a sin, yet he will punish for a sin. Take some reasons for it. First is this, because wicked men that are punished for sin would accuse God of partiality and injustice, should he punish them and not his own people for the same sin. Wicked men would account God partial, but the wicked shall say, I see God's own people are punished in this life more severely than I am. The Lord doth it to vindicate the impartiality of his justice, that he will not spare sin wherever he finds it. The second reason is because God doth command magistrates to execute punishments in this life for sin even upon good men. Therefore, if he commands a magistrate to punish a good man for his sin, surely he doth approve of it. Suppose a good man should commit adultery. He was to die for it. Suppose he should commit murder. He was to die for it. If God did commit, and God did command that penal punishment should be inflicted on good men in this life, then surely he might do it much more himself. The third case of conscience is this. Whether doth pardon of sin go before faith and repentance, or else follow after. I do not speak now of the priority of nature, but of the priority of time. This is a useful question. There are many books in print made by several antinomians that plead for this, that a man is pardoned from all eternity, that before a man believes and repents, he is pardoned, which is a falsehood. Uh, For a believer, the apostle doth confine pardon. Romans 3.25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. For sins that are past, those sins you have committed and have repented of, he gives you pardon for all of them. He that confesseth and forsaketh his sin, he shall find mercy, and he that doth not so shall not find mercy. I answer affirmatively that God doth pardon sin after a man repents and believes, not before. And to give you a proof for this, first I shall give you the grounds from the scripture, then absurdities that would follow if this were not so. First from scripture, observe that the scripture doth limit and confine pardon to a repenting state. Acts 3.19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. No blotting out of sin without repentance. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 26.18 To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So that till thou beest turned from darkness to light until thou beest turned from Satan to God, thou hast not received forgiveness of sins. Mark the antecedent words. He opens their eyes, etc. Therefore God expressly doth tie forgiveness of sin to repentance. And so in John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
there is this uh, first uh, confession, which takes in repentance before forgiveness. Secondly, there is no promise in all the scripture that God will pardon a sin before men's repentance for sin. But there are many promises that God will pardon when they do repent. Proverbs 23.14, Thou shalt beat him with a rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Jeremiah 23.8, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Many promises that when men repent of sin, they shall be, they shall have sinned pardoned. But there is never a promise that hath any show that before a man repents, he shall have pardon. Thirdly, the scripture doth lay them under a state of wrath and condemnation till they believe and repent. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13.5 I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Ephesians 2.3 Among whom also we had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Verse 12 That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers, from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope of heaven, no hope of pardon in an unconverted estate. Now by the sufferings of Christ we receive a pardon. A man unrepenting is a man without Christ, therefore surely without pardon. Therefore the antinomians do bolster men in profaneness, saying to a drunkard, Go on in drunkenness, for God hath pardoned thee from all eternity. But I say, repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. There are not only these expressed testimonies in Scripture and reasons grounded thereupon, but manifold and gross absurdities that would follow if you should deny this truth. This would follow, then, that there is no difference between a converted man and a man unconverted. And is not this gross to say so much comfort uh, to a man before he is converted, as one may say to him after he is converted? Secondly, if a man is pardoned before he believes and repents, then this destroys justification by faith. The scripture saith, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now justification is nothing else but pardoning of sin in God's gracious act, not imputing sin unto you. When the scripture saith, I am justified by faith, and the antinomian saith, I am justified without faith. Where lies the error? Now then, to say that a man is pardoned before he believes and repents, it is an express terms to contradict scripture. When the scripture saith he is justified by faith. The antinomians have this evasion. Say they, a man is pardoned before he believes, is actually pardoned. But when he believes, then he hath manifestation of pardon. On this evasion, a gross error will follow. For by this reason, faith is no more instrumental to justification than as it is declarative to a man that he is justified. Whereas the scripture say, saith, there is more use of faith. For faith is an instrument, actually, to lay hold on Christ for pardon. The grace of love to Christ, the grace of humility, the grace of self-denial, 
and the grace of mortification, these do evidence and declare a pardon's estate as well as faith. This is to destroy the use of faith, that faith is of little or of no use in justification. Again, another absurdity will follow. To say that a man, before he repents, is pardoned, it is as much to say, before a man be in Christ, he is pardoned. This is false, for without Christ there is no pardon. I might run over many absurdities that would follow in denying this orthodox point. There is one strong objection, which is this, Doth not God love a man from all eternity? And doth not the scriptures say that we were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world were laid? Now God, electing of us, or loving of us, is God's pardoning of us. If God doth love a man before he was born, then sure, God doth pardon a man from eternity. To argue from God's love to actual pardon is as great an absurdity as to argue that God did purpose from all eternity to create the world, and therefore the world was created. <clears throat> God's decrees to pardon from all eternity, <clears throat> God executes this decree when thou art conver- converted. God doth manifest this, that he hath pardoned thee when he doth give thee the assurance of his love. Antinomians make only the decree and the manifestation and leave out the execution of it. Secondly, observe this, that when we say that God doth love a man from all eternity, you must understand it that it is a love in purpose, and divines to give this solid and useful distinction in that there is a twofold love in God, there is a love of purpose and a love of complacency or delight. The love of purpose is in God towards elect men from all eternity, that is a love where God hath a purpose in time to do a soul good. But a love of complacency and delight in God is not in God until that object be converted. Before conversion, God hath uh, not in thee a love of delight, For there is nothing in thee that God should take delight in. At that time ye were children of wrath. God doth not love an elect man with the love of complacency till he be converted, until he doth repent and believe. Another objection is this. Doth not God pardon a man before he believes? Then what say ye of young infants, which cannot repent? You will not be so cruel to say that all infants go to hell. I answer, I am far from thinking that all infants go to hell. I believe that heaven is as full of infants as any other rank of years in the world. Yet this plea will make nothing for those that plead for justification before repenting and believing. First, consider there is a great difference between the state of an infant and of men grown to years. Scripture tells you, that faith comes by hearing. That is, in men grown to years, they must get their faith in an ordinary way by hearing the word preached. But this rule holds not for young infants because they are not capable of understanding. They wanting the use of reason, and God expects no more from them than he gives ability. Faith comes by hearing, saith the scripture. But faith the antinomians but saith the antinomians 
What need I hear? What need I pray? For a man may may have pardon without all. But consider that though children cannot exercise faith, yet children may have habitual faith. As divines say, children may have grace seminarily, though they cannot have the exercise of grace. Thou canst not tell, saith Solomon, how the bones of a child grow in the womb. Therefore much more how God, by a strange and powerful manner, can implant and impress grace in the heart of a suckling babe. Yet there is grace in the uh, in elect children. In an elect child there is a seminal grace and habitual grace. As there is sin seminal in a child's nature, that before a child can act sin, it hath sin. So by the same reason, you that will deny grace in children will fall into the Pelagian error, that a child hath no sin, but a child hath a depraved nature, a a nature inclining to sin. Therefore, when it comes to years, though it should never see a sin committed, Yet would it sin, a child cannot act grace, cannot act faith and repentance, that is true. But a child may have grace habitual. Therefore Christ took children in his arms and blessed them. Surely they must be gracious children. Therefore children, in a sense, are pardoned if they believe. We know not how to express their faith, but they do believe. They have an habitual faith. And thus much for the answering of that third case of conscience. The fourth case to be handled is this, whether it be consistent with the state of pardon to commit often the same gross sin over and over again. It is needful to touch upon this case because it perplexeth troubled minds. First, by way of comfort, first answer is this, that it is clear by an induction of particular instances in Scripture that pardoned men have fallen often into the same sin. This is most clear. First, if you refer it to spiritual evils, to evils that are of daily incursion, evils that are inward and spiritual, spiritual pride, distempered passion, remission in duties, a pardoned man may many times fall into such sins as these. Further, it is clear by induction of instances in Scripture that a pardoned man may fall into gross sins, oftentimes into the same sin. Some instances, one is of Joseph. It was a, a gross sin for Joseph to swear an heathenish oath by the life of Pharaoh. Uh, Genesis forty-two fifteen. Hereby ye shall be proved by the life of Pharaoh, ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely ye are spies. Yet the Jews were so well instructed, and had such prohibitions against swearing, one should think that they should not be guilty of so gross an evil. And yet Joseph, being in Pharaoh's court among heathens, he swore twice by the life of Pharaoh. And thus you read of Jehoshaphat, he fell twice into the same sin. He made a league with uh, Eliah, king of uh, Israel. He, he loved them that were enemies to God. 
Second Chronicles 20, 35, 36, 37. And after this did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who did very wickedly. And he joined himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezion Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodna, of Merishah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because thou hast joined thyself with Ahaziah, the Lord hath broken thy works, and the ships were broken, that they were not able to go to Tarshish. Twice he ran into the same sin, and and then you have, in the case of Solomon, he fell into idolatry. And the text saith that he sinned against God, after God appeared twice to him. 1 Kings 11.9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. He fell to idolatry after God appeared twice to him. So that it notes Solomon fell oftentimes into the same sin. Thus you read of Samson, that divines call a very compound of vices, Judges 16. If there were no more spoken of Samson in the New Testament than in the Old, it were questionable whether he was a good man or no. But what read you of Samson? You read of him, first of all, that he married a heathenish woman, which was against God's command. Nay, he fell to the same sin when the Philistines killed her. Then he married a whore. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then went uh, Samson to Gaza, and saw there an harlot, and went in unto her. And nay, again, you shall find him fall three times into the same sin. First of all, he did three times tell a lie, one after another. When Delilah came to unveil him on the instigation of the Philistines, that he uh, that she should learn where Samson's strength lay. First saith Samson, if thy if they bind me with seven green uh, withs that were never dried, then shall I be weak and be as another man. But when he was bound, he broke the withs as one would break the thread too when it toucheth the fire. Then saith he, Why hast thou? Then saith she, Why hast thou deceived me and told me a lie? Then he told her again, If thou wilt bind me with new ropes that were never used, then I shall be weak like another man. But he broke the ropes. Nay, he tells her a third lie. He said unto her, If thou weavest the seven locks of my head with the web, then my strength will go from me. And this she did also. And his strength remained. But the fourth time he told her the truth, and saith he, If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like another man. And she caused the seven locks upon his head to be shaved off, and his strength went from him. I speak this to a perplexed conscience, that good men may be so overborne that they may frequently act over the same sin again and again. Then Peter, that did lie thrice as Samson did, Peter did deny Christ three times with an oath and a cursing. Another instance that is in the case of the Israelites, Numbers 14.22, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, 
Therefore, this should be something to stay the heart that not only sins of an unavoidable infirmity, secret spiritual sins, but also sins that are more obnoxious to infamy and scandal, good men have fallen into and yet been pardoned. Another answer that Jesus Christ bids us to forgive our brother that sins against us in one day, 70 times 7. If Jesus calls, if Jesus Christ calls for this at our hands, who have not hardly a drop of balls, surely God, that hath a sea and a vast ocean of mercies, can forgive a sin and will forgive a sin, though it be often reiterated. Thus much for answer to that question. Now, by way of caution, that this comfort the scripture gives uh, be not abused, first caution is this, that though it be possible a man may fall often into the same sin, yet it is not usually recorded in scripture. It is a note that Hildersham hath on Psalm 51, touching David's foul sin. I do not read of any express example in all the scriptures of a godly man falling oft into the same gross sins, after repentance, and after humiliation for that sin. Observe this further, that though it be possible, yet it is but very rare. And though there be instances that some men have done so, yet there are more plentiful instances that good men have not done so. I'll give you a few instances. Jehoshaphat entered into a sinful league with Ahaziah, but when the prophet rebuked him, Read the story. It's at First Kings 22. He had sinned once with his father, but he would not sin a second time with him. So that here, you see a good man would not a second time join with an Ahaziah. So likewise, you have an instance in Judah that was father-in-law to Tamar, Genesis 38:26, And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not... Uh, to Sheila, my son, and he knew her uh, again no more. It was not again done. He knew her again no more. So as divines do usually urge it, Noah was drunk, but never but once, and that before he knew the strength of the grape. David was adulterous, but never but once. This, therefore, shall be one caution. Secondly, take this caution that you might not be emboldened to run often into the same sin. If a man doth often commit the same gross sin, it argues a greater strength and prevalency that that sin hath over him than all other sins. Physicians say that a disease that a man doth often relapse into argues the strength of these peccant humors that feed the disease. If thou often fallest into lusts, it argues the prevalency of a lustful temper. In the third place, relapses into the same gross sin are very dangerous and deadly symptoms of a man in a lost condition. I do not say they are such symptoms that infallibly conclude a man to be an unpardoned man. I may say, as physicians say, of a relapse into the same disease, the second time is more dangerous than the first disease. The reason is because the first sickness feeds on the ill humors, but the relapse into the same sickness feeds on the vital spirits. Beloved, the falling and relapsing into the same sin is a dangerous symptom. It is a clear 
symptom of the prevalency of that sin. <clears throat> it is worth your notice what symptoms the Lord doth give of the plague of leprosy for the priest to judge that disease by. Leviticus 13, the first symptom was when the hair was turned white in the sore. Divines accommodate that to a continuance in sin in a, to old age. That argues you are unclean lepers. Another symptom was when, he's, when there was raw flesh in the scab. Divines accommodate that unto a man being adventurous to sin against a raw and troubled and wounded conscience. A third sign of the plague of leprosy was when after the four, after the sore was healed, there should be a new scab arise in the place thereof. Thus when after thou hast healed a sin by vows, by fasting and prayer, by holy purposes in Christ's strength, and after the healing of the same sore breaks out, that uh, the same lust breaks in upon thee. This is a dangerous symptom. Fourthly, that you might not be adventurous on this comfort, consider that falling often into the same sin doth more harden the heart than anything in the world. Habituating and indulging a man's self into the same road of wickedness, there is nothing in the world doth more harden the heart than when the same sin hath the same inroad into thy conscience and life. Then all tenderness and remorse of conscience will be taken away. I speak merely on this ground that seeing you have instances that men may fall often into the same gross evils, yet let these four considerations keep you from abusing this comfortable point. Aye, but you will say, if I do fall often into the same sin, what may be to stay my heart up, that I may be in a pardoned estate for all this. I say this to you, that Though thou dost fall often into the same sin, yet if thy conscience bears thee witness, thou dost exercise the same grace often in opposition to the same sin, thou mayst have a great deal of comfort that thou art in a state of pardon. The fifth case follows, But whether may a godly man that is pardoned pray for pardon of sin? Antinomians account this to be needless. They account all prayer for pardon to be only in this sense, to wit, for a sense of pardon, and a manifestation of pardon. Answer, first, though it be true that God doth not call a man to pray for those things that are perfectly done, so as never to be done again, yet God doth command us to pray for those things that are but imperfectly done. I am not to pray to God to create the world, it is perfectly done. I am not to pray for election. It is so done as never to be done more. I am not to pray for the incarnation of Christ. Christ has come into the flesh. But though I am not to pray for these things that are so fully and perfectly done, yet I am to pray for those things that are imperfectly done. Pardon of sin is an act of God that is still in doing. Therefore the Apostle refers pardon, Romans three twenty four and 25 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, though faith through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And as sin is remitted and repented of, it is pardoned. Therefore that reason is not valid to take off men from praying for pardon of sin, 
the scripture doth express it. I acknowledge my transgression, and thou forgavest. Matthew 6.12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. <clears throat> that platform, according to which we are to, are to model our prayers, the antinomians would evade <clears throat> the text and prevent and pretend that in that text and such scriptures we only pray for a sense and a manifestation of pardon in the conscience and not for actual exhibition of pardon in regard of God. To take off this first, uh, the next words in the petition are to be taken for a real forgiveness, not for a forgiveness in sense and feeling, for consider the whole petition. Forgive us our our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. There can be no reason showed why the first part of the petition should be taken for sense and feeling of forgiveness, and the other should be taken so. Secondly, consider this, uh, that in the same sense you must understand a sin to be forgiven, as in scripture language it is spoken not to be forgiven. A sin is said not to be forgiven when there is an actual guilt lies on, on a man, a guilt redounding upon the person of a wicked man that is taken away. Matthew twelve thirty three, And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. They that understand forgiving only in the sense and feeling must understand this clause, not forgiving uh, not for, not only in sense and feeling, and so no real guilt to lie upon the man. Thirdly, it is against the nature of forgiveness to be only forgiving sin in a man's own conscience. A sixth case is this. Whether when a man is suing for pardon, he ought to make a any difference between great sins and small sins. The Stoics say all sins are alike and there is no difference. It is true in regard of the object, all sins are against God. Yet when you come to beg pardon for sin, according as your sins are greatened, you are accordingly to behave yourselves in seeking for pardon. God can pardon great sins as well as small. In regard of God there is no difference, nor in regard of the merits of Christ. But yet, in your behavior, in seeking for pardon of sin, you are to make a great difference between the greatness and the smallness of your your evils. For, beloved, first consider the Scripture makes a difference between sins. Therefore we must do so. The scripture compares some sins to camels and some to gnats. The scripture compares some sins to beams and some to motes. Some sins as talents and others, but as pence. And in Amos there is mention made of mighty sins. Amos 5. In John of greater sins. John 19.11. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, <coughs> except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. It is true, every sin deserves hell, yet there is more of the punishment of hell inflicted on some sinners than others. The reason why I speak of this case is to let you know that as God hath suffered many, any of you to fall into aggravated and heinous evils, so he requires more of you than of other men. First consider that God requires of you more humiliation, than he requires of other men. In the law you read that if a man touched the unclean thing, he was unclean until evening. 
But if a man bear an unclean thing, he was to wash his clothes, to show that the touch of sin requires humiliation. But the bearing of a sin in thy bosom, thy continuing in sin, requires more work than merely the touch of sin. Peter wept bitterly for his denial. He did more for that sin than for an ordinary sin. So that you are to consider that though in regard of Christ there is no difference between a great sin and a small, as the Red Sea could drown Pharaoh and his host as well as a single man, so Christ's blood can drown a huge host of sins. But yet you must increase your humiliation on the aggravation of your guilt. Thus much for the sixth case of conscience. The seventh is this. What are those great circumstances that do great in sin, that so I may see whether I have aggravated my sin or not? Here are two circumstances which do aggravate and greaten sin. First, sinning against the frequent manifestation of God's love to thy soul, this greatly aggravates sin. This did aggravate Solomon's sin. First Kings 11, Solomon was the beloved of the Lord, yet he provoked him to anger. Secondly, to sin against the rebukes and checks of thine own conscience doth greaten sin. James 4.17 Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doth it not, to him it is sin. It is sin to another man that doth not know it, but to him that knoweth it, it is a greater sin. This Christ refers to and speaks of Judas that would betray him, and yet knew that he was the Son of God. What my disciples betray to betray me? His sin was the greater. Conscience is God's officer in man. It is a greater fault to strike a uh, constable than an ordinary man out of office. For thee to sin against the rebukes and checks of conscience aggravates sin. Thirdly, to sin against God's judgments upon other men is an aggravated evil. For thee to sin... When God hath given thee warning of sin from other men's blood, this did aggravate uh, Belshazzar's sin, Daniel. And uh, thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, etc., Thou that knowest how a man is plagued for his uncleanness, thou that knowest how a man is plagued for righteous living, yet thou wilt live riotous, and thou wilt live adulterous. O thou man, thy sin is the greater. Thou sinnest against the monument of the eye, as well as against the warning of the ear. Fourthly, sin against God's judgments upon ourselves doth weigh ten sin, uh, this did aggravate Ahaz's sin, Second Chronicles 28.22. And in the time of his distress, he did trespass yet more against the Lord. Fifthly, to sin against mercies is an aggravation of sin. Second Samuel 12, I delivered thee out of Saul's hand. I gave thee thy master's house. I gave thee the house of Israel. And if all this had been too little for thee, I would have moreover given thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised, etc.? What thou sin, David, and hast been load, loaded with a heap of mercies, this greatens thy sin. 
Sixthly, it greatens sin when the sin is immediately against God. First Samuel 2.25, if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? If a man sins against God, oh who shall plead for him? Seventhly, <clears throat> to sin against the motions of God's Spirit aggravates sin. When the Spirit of God shall in thy conscience persuade thee that thou wouldst not follow such wicked ways as thou art walking in, when the Spirit of God shall come and woo thee to be reconciled, to alter thy course, and to walk in better paths, when not only the voice of conscience, but the motions of God's Spirit shall be stifled. This aggravates sin. Hence it is that Scripture, in setting out the wrongdoing and withstanding uh, the Spirit's motion, whether to good or from evil, doth ascend by gradations. Sometimes it is called quenching the Spirit, quench not the Spirit. A higher degree, there is a grieving the Spirit. When there are frequent acts to withstand divine motions, that is a grieving the Spirit. And thirdly, there is a higher aggravation than this, that is, resisting the Spirit. Acts 7.51 Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. This is caused by pertinaciousness in withstanding the Spirit's motion. Fourthly, the Scripture speaks of vexing the Spirit. Isaiah 63.10 But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit, therefore he was turned to be their enemy and fought against them. This is not only by one single act, but when continually, throughout thy course, thou hast a willful and gainsaying heart against all the motions of God's Spirit within thee, must not this be a great evil in thee? When thou dost quench, grieve, resist, and vex the Spirit, all these circumstances must needs aggravate and greaten thy sin. Eighthly, sin is aggravated, when thou dost frequently fall into the same sin. Ninthly, sin is aggravated when it is done in a way of complacency, that it is not only acted by thee, but loved by thee. The acting of a sin is not so much as a loving of sin. Tenthly, sin is aggravated when it is done by eminent and public persons, whose example draw other men to sin. And this did aggravate Jeroboam's sin. Second Kings 17 21. For he rent Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drave Israel from following the Lord, and made them sin, a great sin. Thou that hast sinned a sin, and art a public person, thy sins are other men's sins. Thine is a greater sin than other men's sins is. For every act that thou hast done will be an emboldening and encouragement of others to do the like. Eleventhly, it aggravates sin when God has punished other men for thy sin. This makes the sin of rulers to be great sins, because for their sins God may punish the people. As for David's sin in numbering the people, there did thousands of Israel die of the plague. And thou sinnest in thy family... God may punish all the house for that sin. This you shall find an aggravation of Abraham's sin. Genesis 20, verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? 
Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. Twelfthly, sin is an aggravated sin when it is done by a man that lives under much means of grace, where the gospel is preached, where sin is reproved, where to live in a way of wickedness greatens thy sin, that made a woe to be pronounced by Christ against Chorazin and against Bethsaida, because they had the gospel. It should be worse with them than with Sodom and Gomorrah. In the thirteenth place, sin is aggravated when they are against many vows, purposes, and prayers, and many holy resolutions. Thou addest perjury to thine iniquity, and that aggravates thy sin. The use? Such are the riches of God's pardoning grace, that he forgives sins clothed with many aggravated circumstances. Oh, then, what remains? There are two things to be done by you. First, if any of you find that you are under these thirteen aggravations, that you can call your sins the iniquity of sin, oh, then you should admire and magnify the multitude of God's mercy, that great sins cannot outvie God's mercy, but God's mercy outvie thy great sins. Magnify pardoning grace the more. Paul saith, 1 Timothy 1.13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. Oh, do thou say so. I have been thus vile and thus wicked. I have thus clothed my sin. Yet through the abundance of grace and love, I have obtained mercy. Oh, let this instance and let this enhance the value of Christ's blood. Secondly, labor to greaten thine own graces. Hast thou been notorious in sin? Why shouldst not thou be great in humiliation, great in repentance? And thus I have, by the good hand of God, in these twelve sermons, handled two doctrines to you, the one touching David's penitential act, confessing sin, and the other of God's gracious act, the Lord forgave him the iniquity of his sin. So much for this text. Finished. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. 
The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.